Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, we're going to talk to your toaster as a 10-year-old. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. According to our guest today, divorce is a monster under the kid's bed. In her ongoing film project, Ellen Bruno is putting kids' voices first, hearing how a group of young people view divorce over the long arch of their young lives. The 2013 film, Split, introduces us to 12 kids adapting to divorce in their families. This year, we catch up with those same kids 10 years later in Split Up the Teen Years as they reflect on how their lives have been marked by divorce. Ellen Bruno, welcome to the toaster. Ellen. My goodness. First of all, hi. But also, I'm watching the split and, and s- split up, and my heart is just, like, bleeding for these kids. Uh, but uh, before I start just gushing over the just straight-up fantastic filmmaking, can you d- set the stage uh, of, of what you have, what you are working to accomplish with the, sp- the Split Outreach Project? Sure, yeah. And yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, well. You know, I was a kid of divorce in the 60s, and then, you know, 30 years later, I was a parent, <laughs> leaving, separating from my, my kid's dad, and um, I realized that uh, there was a lot that had not changed in those 30 years. We were pretty isolated as kids. I grew up in a small town in Rhode Island, sort of an Italian Catholic community, and nobody was divorced, and at that point, everybody thought... You know, it was, don't mention it to the kids, you know, don't talk about it. You know, it's going to upset them. Well, as if we didn't notice. And so with our child imaginations, we, um, you know, especially me, I was inventing all kinds of bizarre and tragic (laughs) um, explanations for the heaviness that was happening in our household. And um, I actually thought I was dying. And in my 10-year-old mind, you know, my parents would go into their room and, you know, have a you know, a quiet, uh, private powwow and come out and clearly they were both upset and then they were being extra nice to me. And, you know, I ate more ice cream in that month than I had probably my entire life. And I thought something's fishy here, you know. <laughs> and it, then 30 years later, I realized, okay, things have changed. Everybody's doing it, right? Divorce is so commonplace in our culture, right? And so it's been normalized to the point that I thought, okay, well then, um, you know, it must be that way to some degree for the kids. And I started paying attention to the kids in the backseat of my car as I was going back and forth to soccer, uh, with soccer dripping, dripping with ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you go through the ice cream drive through. They're like, nice to see you again. Um, second scoop of the day. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And kids were my kids and the kids in the back of the car. I realized they were only talking to each other. If, their parents are also divorced. You know, that seemed to be, you know, if you were part of the club, you could talk about it. Otherwise, it was kind of embarrassing and kind of yucky and kids, other kids wouldn't understand. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a way to get these kids talking. There's got to be a way to at least create something that I'd, I'd want my kids to watch that didn't feel kind of creepy or kind of completely, you know, controlled and moderated by experts or parents, you know, give the, give the floor to the kids and see what they come out with. And so that was sort of the impetus for, for the film, the first film. And so the first film that was 2013. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you interviewed uh, 12 
kids. That's right. And those faces are just burned into my brain. They're adorable. And I was, I have to tell you, stunned at their wisdom. Yeah. What did you, what did you find listening to them talk about this experience that you understood both as a kid, but years ago and, and as a, um, as a survivor of divorce? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny you should use the word survivor because my entire career has been, you know, working in war zones and refugee camps. And all of my previous work has been about people surviving genocide or, you know, being tortured in prison um, as political prisoners or, you know, and so my, my, my entire career has really been both direct service, service with survivors, but also then eventually making films. And so everybody at the beginning said, well, why this is so different than your work. This is the first film I've actually made in the States. And, um, and then it became clear, actually, you know, these kids are survivors, you know, what are survivors, you know, what survivors do is they try to make sense of their circumstances. You know, something's getting served up to them, be it, you know, a war, some economic hardship, some disease, divorce. And I don't mean to equate all of those, but, you know, surviving is really about making sense of what's being served up to you that you probably have no control over. And, you know, it's creating the narrative and and therefore the, the movement forward and Kids are very much survivors of this. You know, even the best of circumstances, you know, kids, their lives are rocked by divorce, you know, and we need to recognize this, even though, um, you know, like I said, it's become so normalized in our culture in a way it's been a little over normalized for the kids. So I have a feeling people are figuring, oh, Johnny's going to be okay. Um, in part because they need to feel like Johnny's going to be okay, that's, but also that's you know? not that's not what I hear in my office. It's Johnny's only going to be okay if he's with me. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's that, uh, right? Right. And hence, and hence, the conflict, which in and of itself is the problem. Yeah, and then not communicating with the children at their level. And this is going to sound counterintuitive in get not letting them get involved. And here's what I mean by get involved is when, when you tell children this is happening, they, much like your 10-year-old mind did, wanted to, how does this impact me? Right? They do not care that mom and dad are not going to be sleeping in the same room. They do not care. What they care about is where they're going to be sleeping. So when you say stuff like, well, dad's going to get a new place or mom's going to get a new place or we're both going to get a new place and we're really going to need your help on picking out a great room for you, right? Now you're talking to them at their level, whatever that might be. But when you just say nothing from what these kids I'm hearing, which I agree with Pete, they're freaking adorable and their wisdom was great. They, they think they're the problem. Right. I caused it. That was it. Like that was you. You had said something in another interview, Ellen. Forgive me, but I and I, I feel like we've already dropped this line. But the divorce is there is the monster under their bed. Right. Like right. that's the oh, oh, my God, it's the unknown unspeakable. Exactly. And and that is yeah. the that's a huge awakening 
when I, I have to imagine as a parent going through divorce, watching these words come out of those faces that they know vastly more than you think they do, that they are aware oh, yeah. and ready to talk about so much more than you think they are. That's the that's a, a key lesson out of out of all of this work. For, oh, for they're me, totally. Certainly. I mean, these kids are so tuned in, and I, you know, this idea that they don't know what's going on, or that that they can't intuit on some level what's going on with their parents. I mean, our kids are so dialed into us, you know, and um, and and we've got to trust that they, obviously, as one of the kids in the film says, an eight year old can't hear everything. You're not going to download to the eight year old about how mom had an affair, and that's why they're set, you know. But you know, you do need to help them create the narrative. Everybody is so concerned about. How am I going to tell them about the divorce? And then they have the sense that once the divorce has happened, meaning two households are established, everything is then fine. Okay, now we can move forward. Well, in fact, that's kind of the beginning for most of these kids. Like you were saying, Seth, I mean, it's it's like these kids, yeah, the divorce happens, but it's what happens from that point forward that's going to you know, really dictate what the how comfortable these kids are in two homes, how comfortable they feel having good relationships with both parents and um, and how comfortable they feel in their homes. You know, even if it's the corner of a living room where they have a cot and one stuffy, if there's a sense of home and the kids are sort of taken in by both parents, so the sense of let's create, let's create a new place for you here. Let's go discover what the grocery store is like down the street, you know, kind of involve the kids in the exploration of a new place, of the creating of a new space. And that's all on their level. And when you do that, you can take it a step further and have what I call just check-ins. Like every now and then, I'm just going to check in with you and I'm. this is going to be the check-in. It might be when in the car, it might be at dinner, it's not going to be around your friends, but hey, how you doing? Do you miss mom? Do you miss dad? Do you have any questions? Just check in on your mental health. And, and, and sometimes you're going to be like, yeah, no, I'm good. Right. Or you're going to get, well, I really miss dad or I really miss, but you're giving them the opportunity to say it's okay to miss the other parent or to do X, Y, and Z. And Pete, we've talked about this before and I'm very fortunate. My kid was very intuitive and he was very little and he was going to bed and he calls his mom. And then I chat with him when he, after he talks to his mom, we read bedtime stories. I mean, he was like three and a half, four years old. And he was upset. And I said, what's wrong, buddy? He goes, well, I'm just sad. I'm like, what are you sad about? And he goes, well, I just miss mom when I'm with you. And I said, and this was like terrifying to ask, well, how do you feel when you're at mom's? Because he could be like, I'm great. You know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, and you, I don't need to know, kiddo. I don't need right. to hear that. Yeah. But, but he goes, and I, when I'm with mom, I really miss you. And, and I just got lucky as a parent and said, well, you have a choice on whether you're happy or not and how you feel. Part of that is what you can control when you're dealing with this situation. I said, so you can miss mom when you're with me and be sad. And you can miss me when you're with mom and be sad. And then you'll be sad all the time. I said, or you could be happy with mom when you're with mom. And you can be happy when you're with me with me. You're still allowed to miss the other parent. That's okay. But generally, you can be happy. So you want to be sad all the time or happy all the time? And he just goes, I want to be happy all the time. I said, well, there you have it. I, I called his mom that night, and she was a little bit like, hello, like, everything okay? I, I just thought you were putting him to bed. I said, look, everything's fine. He's sleeping. I just want to call you and tell about this conversation I had. And she said, oh, my God, I am so glad you called. 
I said, why? She goes, because he always tells me how he misses you and it breaks my heart, right? Because because I want him to be happy with me, but I also want him to be happy. Right? So she was dealing with the same thing. And I said, I just let you know, I don't know if I said it was right. It seemed to have worked. Let's keep an eye on this. And so, but having the conversation at that basic level with a three-year-old, right, is what you need to do. Well, and the fact that you can have this conversation, Seth, with your kid's mom is, is, is really part of the equation there. And, you know, it's true. Of course, kids, they're going to miss their dog. They're going to miss the other parent. They're going to miss, you know, uh, their, their pillow. I mean, kids just get used to, they, they like being comfortable in their spaces. But one of the things that one of the kids said to me once when I asked, what would, what's the most important thing in your mind to tell other parents, you know, that are going through divorce? And she said, it is so important for kids to know that there was once love or that they came from love. And the truth is the vast majority of time, these kids do come from love, you know, and, but oftentimes there's such animosity that the kids aren't even allowed to keep a a photo of them with both parents. Like my daughter who's 23 right now, her favorite photo is a picture of me and her dad holding her when she was about two. It's not a great photo. (laughs) Nobody looks particularly good. But to her, that is her touchstone saying, there was love. I came from love because, and to honor that on a certain level. And that's really hard for parents, obviously, when they're going through all of the chaos and hurt and anger and everything else. And disappointment of separation. But it's so critical to the kids because that's how they can help to maintain a sense of whole, despite the fact that they're living in two two households. You know, it really is this sense of whole that they kind of cherish and this connection with both. I, I feel like we've, we've, we dove into the story telling only half of it because the, the, the movie split, the initial uh, film is just a part of it. You come back to these same 12 kids 10 years later and you give us split up. This is my favorite part. Right. Right. This is fantastic. So you're pulling kind of a Richard Linklater boyhood thing here, or a, a seven up, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, or it, it is, uh, it, it's a fantastic, like, journey through time. Like, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror every day and, and you, you don't really notice much difference. But my goodness, when you come back and look at pictures from 10 years ago, you're a different person. These kids are different people. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you learned coming back to these kids. Well, I mean, much like the first time, um, you know, these conversations were very organic conversations. I didn't go in with my agenda and let's, let's talk about this, this, and this. I just kind of said, look, kids, talk about what's important to you. And these really strong themes emerged even when they were younger, six to 12 years old. Certain things that, you know, it, it just seemed to be, I'm not saying every kid um, experiences the same things, but for example, one of them is this is is this my fault? You know, that's something that was that's hard for a lot of parents to understand how kids come up with that idea that this is somehow my fault. But especially after the divorce, when you realize, oh my God, well, their parents are always arguing about time and about money and about you know the logistics of going back and forth, all of these very kid-related things. How could a kid not think that they were the center of the problem, right? Well, we went back 10 years later. And luckily, all of the kids were really eager to participate. And what became clear was that the, the, the well-being of these kids, you know, their sense of stability, emotional stability, and their sense of 
agency really seem to be in many ways directly proportional to the amount of conflict between their parents. And again, these themes emerged. One of them was how burdensome often it is for kids to take care of their parents, you know, on, on, on an emotional level. If they have a parent or their parents are always getting upset or fighting with each other, they feel like they have to be super good, you know, and or they need to be the peacemaker between parents and kind of mediate and get in there and try to smooth things over. Even just on one girl was saying, my mother created this life that she can't manage on her own. She's got all these dogs and she's got all this stuff she needs to deal with. And so I have to be the other parent, you know, and I really resent that. And so there's this way on so many levels that kids without parents really realizing it, take up the, the, the baton, so to speak, and in and, and so many ways to, to take care of their parents and, and also get caught in this, this sort of framework of what's fair. And, you know, it's funny, I, I did that throughout my adult life with my parents, you know, oh, that's Christmas. Uh, I'm going to spend Christmas with my morning with my mom, but then I have to get over to dad's, you know, by noon at the latest, because then he'll be sitting around waiting for me. And I have to, you know, in this kind of back and forth, back and forth, how much time I don't want my mom to think I love her more because of my dad. And I have to be careful about what I say in front of my dad. I can't really mention my mom because that makes him upset. And, you know, all of this managing. I mean, isn't that what Christmas is all about? (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't my family. I mean, Ellen, Ellen, I'm I'm a good Jewish boy, so I don't really know these things. But but that's what I thought the story of Christmas was all about. Well, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. No kidding. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> have we had enough dysfunction yet this christmas yeah, right, this holiday right. season <laughs> yep um the the act of I, I, you're saying all these things and i all i can think about is like did the parents of these kids watch the first movie like did they learn nothing that what are you what do you hear from from the lessons learned by parents i mean you're shaking your head no which makes me so nervous about the answer well you know i mean the truth of it is yeah, they all saw the first film and they all did the best they could or they tried to do the best they could. And the fact is, you know, I guess on some level, we're all trying to do the best we can, but there's this thing that happens. I mean, our entire system, our entire legal system, our entire social oh, system, here it comes. our culture. Let's, let's <laughs> bash the lawyers. <laughs> I'm not bashing the lawyers. Hold on, Ellen, I'm buckling up here. Click, there you click. Go. go ahead. Let's just say we don't do divorce well in our culture. We're doing an awful lot of it. But I mean, for God's sakes, when I was getting divorced, people couldn't wait to tell me what a jerk my kid's father was. Now, it feels good at first, right? Because you're like, okay, wow, I guess I'm right. And I, Because you know, the, not- the other D in divorce is dopamine, right? <laughs> like it just feels good sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then it becomes like eating too much candy where you're like, oh my God, I'm going to puke now right and and so this is what we do this is how we think in our culture we can support people that are going through a divorce trash the other parent and yeah okay it feels good for a while yeah well i get it you know but the fact is you know you're in a relationship with that person for the rest of your life that's the truth of it and you know how can we you know you were just said you're talking about for your son you know there's a door that says suffering and there's a door that says joy and love. And we actually have the ability to choose what door we're walking through. Yeah. It's so great. You could say that to your son. Well, I was very fortunate. I got, I, I absolutely. And I got lucky on that. And on that point, 
truly comes back to being vulnerable because in that moment I was vulnerable saying, well, how do you feel at mom's, right? I'm putting myself out there and I'm going to take whatever comes my way. Also being vulnerable as they get older to say during my time, which I hate that it's not my time. It's the time that you happen to be spending with me because it's his time. Exactly. Right. But when something good happened, when he was with me on the weekends that he was scheduled and was spending time with me, the first thing I would say is, do you want to call mom and tell her? That would be the first thing. And then like he played chess. So I would text her from the chess tournaments. First game he won, you know, it's going into the second game. And then I would get a text, any update? I'm like, no, he's been in there for an hour. I don't know what's going on. You know, I was like, so, and then what would get reinforced and this is the other key. You open the communication with the parent, you tell the kid to call the parent and then it gets reinforced and said, dad told me you won, you know, four out of your five games. Tell me about your favorite one. Now the kid knows we're communicating that it was positive. It was like gets the reinforcement in those little things. I think have had a huge positive impact in my child's life. That is no skin off your back. It's easy, right? Exactly. But yet what you're saying is true is it doesn't mean that you have to be vulnerable. You do need to, you know, the truth is everybody's feeling hurt. Everybody's angry. Everybody feels ripped off or betrayed or whatever the sort disappointed the circumstances are. And, you know, who wants to be soaking in the toxicity of all of those feelings? You know, we're doing ourselves a favor if we can sort of step up and just let that stuff go, which means being vulnerable, right? And it's so great. You know, somebody needs to make the first step. Somebody needs to extend the first olive branch, understanding that this isn't just about the kids. This is about the adults and the parents, too. It's much better. It's a much better life to live outside of the 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 uh, toxicity of anger and resentment. Yeah, okay, shit happens, right? You know, but let's all move forward with life. And the other thing is, I hear yeah. I hear what our listeners are saying, Pete, to their minds like, yeah, but my ex is different. They'll never change. I assure you. I'm not disagreeing with you. Your ex might not reciprocate. Your ex might still be the toxic one. But you know, and your kids will figure it out. Hence, go forward 10 years. They're going to figure it out that they know that you're the one that made the effort. Right. This, this actually leads to a, something that I'm mulling over hearing you to talk is when you think about, like we talk a lot about self-care and we take care of ourselves in the divorce process. You have the benefit of seeing this range of, of kids and their growth process, whether their parent has chosen to make, you know, to, to pick the door of joy or the door of suffering. What are the kids, like if, as you reflect on what the kids are doing to take care of themselves, how do they self-care in absence of parents who are are resonating with their experience? Well, I think what's interesting when they're older is that they begin to realize that oftentimes they don't take care of themselves. They haven't been taking care of themselves. And that's kind of one of the 
sad parts uh, of listening to these teenagers and young adults is they're they're saying they're actually saying i think two or three of them in the film said i'm growing up now i'm heading to college you know and i i realize i have to learn how to put myself first it's like you know it's about me one of the girls actually said it's like being in a plane and the oxygen mask falls i have to learn how to take care of myself and it's been a very long time of not doing that, of putting other people first, because she's been tending to her time with both parents and trying to be fair and taking care of her younger sister and making sure everything is okay. And so, well, and in um, some cases, there was the gentleman who said, a young man who said, and and I've had three divorces in my life since then. Like I, right. am, I have been just watching this happen around me for the last ten years. Right. Right. Well, and that's exactly it is watching because. You can't underestimate kids. Doesn't matter what we tell kids, they're being patterned by what they see at a very strong, unconscious, and semi-conscious way by how we're behaving. And so, if they see the choices we make when we're like really pissed off, or we're really stressed out, or we're really sad, that's how they're going to make the choices. I mean, I see myself as a parent. If I'm like in a really pressured situation, I become my father, and it's not always the best of my father. Oh, it's just Alan, like, I'm sorry. Matters. I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry to hear that. I've never met your father. This is the first I've heard of your father. But just the way you say it, I'm sorry to hear yeah, that. Sorry to hear that. Right. <laughs> well, my father was a was a judge, and he was a real hard nosed kind of. He was a lovely guy but okay. you know so, he would put me so now seth has met your father <laughs> yeah now now i understand when you say that like he's got the gavel yeah it might hit the table it might hit your head i'm with you just give me the facts what are the facts oh shit ellen that's exactly what my mom would say and she was a, a very uh accomplished lit- litigated uh, or litigator and i would try she's like that's not the question I asked. Answer the question. <laughs> but it made you a good uh, uh, debater, I'm sure. Man, I yeah, my fiance loves that about me. Let me tell you, no. But back to back to this, which I think is really fascinating, is that this child who has been watching all these divorces happen over and over, or taking care of yourself, and I have to be be myself. And we had this on a, a, on the podcast before, where a parent said the child was going off to college and said, it's the great consolidation because it was going to be the first time in their lives that all their shit was that they really wanted in one place was in one small dorm room. Right. So imagine if your shit was always in two separate houses. Yeah, totally. Not only just is your shit in two separate houses, but you're two different people. I mean, you know, I would even in, I would watch, I would go pick up my kids at my, um, at their dad's house and their stepmom had a very different idea of how kids should dress, right? And so here are these, you know, four and six-year-olds coming out of the house in these clothes. And I'm like, what the hell are they wearing those clothes for? Who is this kid, right? You know, and they would be, you know, they were like in t-shirts and sweatpants at my house. And all of a sudden they would be, you know, with their little happened you know <laughs> and it, it and it, it made me realize that these kids aren't just moving from space to space these kids are moving are, are what's being asked of them oftentimes is to actually be quite a different child different behavior different things are okay different things are acceptable different it's a it's a different environment it's a totally different environment right 
And and so to 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 pay attention to that, they need to they need to morph back into who they're they are at your house. And so what happens is when the the you know, and believe me, I've lived it, you're so excited to see the kids after you haven't seen them for a while that you know it's like, oh okay, great. So when you get home, we're gonna go and we're gonna do this and this and this, and we're gonna engage, 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 right? Because I miss you so much and I just wanna yank. And the kids are like, Oh my god. They just need like this little bardo time. Right. It's like a couple but, but, hours of, you know. Ellen, here's what I hear. Whenever the kids come back, it takes them two days to get back to being themselves. Yeah, well. Right? It takes them two days. And by the time things are normal again, they're swapping. They're leaving. And I'm like, the issue, in the, there's a problem. They point that they want to blame someone. And guess who's, you know, candidate number one? The ex. So what happens is I say, how much, what are you doing when they come home, right? Like, are you going to give them a little bit of space? Are you going to give them a little bit of slack? Because they're adjusting to new rules, new this, new that, right? So with all that being said, depending on the age of the children, and a lot of high school kids love this, they go week on, week off. Yes. And, and, and I'm a big advocate for having that exchange day be on a Friday. And the reason I like that is because you have the weekend to adjust, not the school week to adjust. And then they're high school kids. You're not going to see them on the weekend anyway. Exactly. And then when they're home for the school and stuff, it's like I've lived it, you know? Um, but little kids, it's a little harder, right? A week is a long time to go without seeing a parent. So it's a, it's a much, they're, they're going back and forth much more frequently, which makes this transition much more difficult. Right. But parents shouldn't, you know, be upset if the teenager walks in the door and then, and then they walk in their room and close the door for four hours. That kid needs to decompress, you know. Or, that, and that happens on every teenager. Exactly. And or when the little kids, you know, just give them some space. You know, if you feel like you absolutely need to be around the kid, then do something where they can space out a little bit. Like have a baking project or do let them color or do drawing in the same room with you. But just give them some space um it's and you know it's interesting that's one thing that that a lot of the older kids brought up in the film was this idea of how important it was to like transition from this more regular back and forth when they were younger you know some of these kids literally every other day would switch now could you imagine how crazy making that is every other day back and forth back and forth back and forth and and then you know this realization and one of them was very articulate saying you know we were younger and we did need more of a connection to parents you know but when we were older it was just too disruptive you know the week on the week off was so much better we could settle into the energy in the household, we can settle into rhythms, you know, it's it's enough time to do that. And and sometimes kids even go two weeks on, two weeks off. It sounds kind of radical when your kids are young, like I could never imagine that happening, but it's actually appropriate for some teenagers. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is foundational. It's, it's a sense of like here, at least we give you some time to be centered. Yeah. At least we give you yeah. some time to find a place. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. So what, what's what's next? Legitimately curious, is there a path that continues these kids with these kids into adulthood? Well, I mean, wouldn't that be interesting? I mean, I'm interested just for my, you know, what what, what will happen, you know, very much like seven up, what will happen, you know, yeah. with these same 12 kids in 10 years. But something else I'm really interested in is I think one of the problems uh, we have in our culture is, and it references something I said earlier, is we really don't have very good 
good role models as parents, you know, for people that are doing divorce right now. Gwyneth Patro um, got a lot of shit for her unconscious coupling. Mm-hmm. Uh, conscious uncoupling. Uncon- uncoupling. Conscious uncoupling, yeah. right. Yeah. Unconscious <laughs> coupling is how she got into it. <laughs> Yeah, right, exactly. exactly. Right. That's what got us in this problem <laughs> yeah. in the first place. Yeah, now we have to consciously <laughs> exactly. uncouple. Right. Um, and, you know, it is a bit woo but, you know, there's something to be said for it. You know, who who are our positive role models? And so when I look at the 12 kids in, in these films, believe me, I know all the parents, right? Um, I know all 12 sets of parents. And, and I'm really kind of fascinated by uh, uh, this idea of talking to the parents, you know, sort of like, okay, let's see if I can get all 12 sets of these parents in a room. Um, not at the same time, but I, I, can I was about to say, it. you're no. crazy. No. And, and just say, okay, let's talk about it. Yeah. You know, what's your experience of this whole thing? We know what your kids experienced. We've heard from them two times in their lives. So what's, what's your experience? And, you know, what, what's worked for you? What's been really hard? What's, you know, and because then it can be in the same way, just sort of a, a, a look from parents can look at it and say, okay, this shit's hard, you know, and nobody's telling you otherwise, but despite its hardness, you know, how, you know, how are ways that we can make better choices despite how pissed off we are? But see, here's the thing about that with, first off, parenting is hard. Right. Parenting is hard. (laughs) There are some things about parenting that get much more difficult when you're parenting with someone who is not living under the same roof and you don't really have the desire, the need, the want to have any other relationship with that person other than parenting. And what I mean by that is it's not like when you get in a disagreement about the kids, you're going to try to work it out because you're all go- you're going out tonight on a date with that person, right? The only real connection now is the kids. Now, there's some things that get easier about parenting, you don't have the other parent telling you what you're doing wrong every single time you're with the kids. You want to make mac and cheese? Make mac and cheese. You want to take them to McDonald's? Take them to McDonald's. You want to stay up late and watch a movie? Stay up late and watch a movie. You you don't have those. But if you got three kids, man, you are way outnumbered. Right? Yeah. So there's yeah. things that are, are harder, some things that are easier. And overall, parenting's hard in the best of circumstances. Mm-hmm. I I, I want to Shanghai that conversation just a little bit because I want to go back to this. What could we learn with another 10 years? There's this open question that I feel like we can that you are uniquely positioned to help answer through film, which is how do children of divorce wind their way into future relationships as young adulthood? How does this impact their relationships? And I'm really curious about that. And I feel like these first two films have set us up and uh, for the divorce impact on life. And so uh, here's, here's hoping the clock ticks favorably uh, over the next 10 years, because this, these are wonderful, wonderful films. And I have to say, your production team is extraordinary, Ellen, extraordinary. Uh, the camera work is amazing. Ellen Curris is one of our very favorites uh, from Eternal Sunshine to I Shot Andy Warhol. Oh, I mean, yeah. just incredible filmmaking going on here. Uh, you've, you've produced some beautiful, insightful work. Um, thank you i hope people go 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 please go check it out uh and uh, splitfilm.org is where you want people to go that's right any big lessons you want to leave us with uh 8 a.m day one where do you want people to start 
changing their lives. I mean, you know, I, I think what you mentioned is really interesting and was a big surprise to me is <clears throat> that, you know, the way we sort of behave as parents is really <clears throat> um, signaling to our kids um, what's possible in terms of their own relationships, <clears throat> their own romantic relationships. And that was a big surprise for me. So a lot of these kids are saying, I don't know, you know, they don't have a whole lot of faith in it, you know, um, except for the few that have managed to maintain a, a relationship with their, the other parent, despite the, the difficulty. Those are the kids that are like, you know what, I think I could do this. So I think that there's a way that parents don't understand all of the ways that their choices affect their kids' sense of possibility. And, and in that way, I think the new film, the looking back over the past 10 years can really be a cautionary tale for parents, you know, in terms of... So, Ellen, I'm going to ask you a tough question here. I think it's tough. We'll see. And then I'm going to, after you answer, I'm going to tell you the reason why I'm asking it. If you had parents going through a divorce, what would you tell them why they really need to watch your films? Well, I think that... um there's this way that we think or hope that our kids are being straight with us, but uh, I think it's, it's quite amazing the ways that kids aren't really straightforward with their parents always. And so I think that there's something that's a comfortable distance for parents. These aren't their kids talking to them directly, which would be a little overwhelming and a little hard to um to really take in. These are just other kids, kids you don't know. And so there's this comfortable distance between our experiences and these kids, yet we recognize it. So that something of the, there's some magic formula about that distance that allows it to be digested by parents. And it's also, these kids are funny and they're charming. You know, they're not sitting around crying through the whole film. I mean, they're telling jokes. They're talking about funny experiences. Fantastically charismatic. Yeah. And so uh, there's a hopefulness to it. And the, the film actually is really um, exciting for kids to watch because they feel really seen and heard and they feel excited and they feel encouraged because these are a bunch of really cool kids, you know, and they're like, wow, look at these cool kids talking to me straight. You know, they're giving me the good and the bad and I trust them. And so it's actually very comforting for kids. Um, And I think it can be for parents. Yes, there are some hard lessons to be learned, but there's also... You see how strong these kids are, how resilient they are, and that kids have an enormous amount of inner resources, and um, they can mature faster than they would have otherwise if they need to. They'll step up to the plate. They'll make sense of things. Um, there's a lot our kids are doing that's fabulous, right? The reason, the reason why I asked is in the great state of Florida, parents are required to take a parenting course if you're getting divorced. And most of my parents are like, well, that was worthless. Some people get a little nugget. I think this should be required watching. Required viewing, yeah. 100%. And the reason why I asked the question the way I did is I'm sitting here thinking, I wonder if I can get a judge to order a parent to watch this. Well, you know what? that's what happens in San Francisco and in several courts throughout the country. You can't pass go in San Francisco without watching the first film. It's part of the the court orientation. And that's happening in Colorado and in Arizona. 
So it's it's beginning to happen. So hey, we're, well, I'm, I'm in the game. I'll, <laughs> I'll work <laughs> with you on that. I, I would love to work with you on getting that in Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm serious. That's yeah. why I asked it. That's wonderful. Well, uh, links in the show notes for sure. Ellen, Bruno, you're amazing. Fantastic uh, fandom right here of your work here. (laughs) So what what better podcast than a divorce podcast to be a fan of your work, right? So this is... I know how to have a good time. We sure appreciate you coming by. (laughs) And uh, and definitely go check out the film, everybodysplitfilm.org. Ellen, Bruno, thanks for being here. Thank you. Hey, Pete. I know you know it. Alarming every time. Alcohol abuse and alcoholism, according to the National Institute on the same, talking like a lawyer here, mm-hmm. 10% of the children live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. I don't know how you do it every day, Seth, coming to work and seeing these kinds of statistics and, and dealing with these kinds of cases. And uh, I mean, I know as it, everybody's interested in making sure that we have kids that are with sober parents in spite of struggles that are real that people are going through in their families. We got to get them through the divorce process safely, and we got to get them through the divorce process healthily. Here's how I do it. Alcoholism or suffering from an alcohol use disorder is not in itself the problem in a divorce. It's the hearsay, the allegations, the weaponization of it all. And we have a solution where if you are suffering from alcoholism or if you're being accused of being an alcoholic you can get rid of all the weaponization all rid of the rid of the allegations rid of the hearsay by using soberlink we love soberlink it's a handheld device you blow into it it has facial recognition so the other parent in the court that's going to see the results knows that it's you picture can only be used for court purposes you put that in your agreements you ask the court to put in the court order they can't post that on social And it monitors whether you have any blood alcohol content in that breathalyzer. And you can easily show the court that you weren't drinking when you have your kids, when they're in your care, custody, or control. Whether you're going to start driving, pick them up from school, dropping them off late at night when they're sleeping, whatever the case may be, it's real-time, third-party, independent verification that you're doing what you need to do, which is focusing on your kids and not drinking. Soberlink has helped over 500,000 people prove their sobriety and provide peace of mind during parenting time. And you can get started right now. Just sign up and receive $50 off your device. Just visit Soberlink.com slash toaster. Soberlink.com slash toaster. Thank you to Soberlink for sponsoring this show. Seth, we have a listener question. Bring it on. Are you ready for this? All right. So this listener has written to us at howtosplittatoaster.com, and they pushed the button that said, uh, submit your question, which is what you can do, too. Don't forget, you could get Seth to answer your question, just like Greg did. Here is Greg's question. Forgive me if I wander around this question, but I wonder, from an attorney's perspective, how you feel about the memification of divorce trends. I just listened to the Winning Your Divorce episode, and it was good. The guests were fine. But my former spouse and I just closed the books on our divorce, and I think it's fair to say that we both got what we expected, not everything we wanted, but we ended in a way that we both felt was fair enough. We're broken, exhausted, lame. There is absolutely no bone in my body that feels like I won my divorce. And that kind of language, and maybe right now I'm just raw, but it just pisses me off. It's a marketing spin 
on a horrible process full of shame and loss and telling me that there's a way to win my divorce just feels mean. Do you think about this as an attorney, Seth? And I don't mean do you think about it relative to the podcast, because I'm sure you do. But as a part of your practice, how do you think about the commodification of marketing messages around divorce and how they impact the people going through it? Thanks. Great show. Thank you, Greg. Seth, big question. Brilliant question. I hate that shit, too. There's no winning. Judges will tell you there's no one that's going to win in divorce. And then they say, except financially, Mr. Nelson, how much is your hourly rate? How many hours is it going to take you to try this case? Are you going to try this case if you're not getting paid? There is a lot of things about the divorce industry. And I use that term purposely. It is an industry that I absolutely despise. The length of time that it takes, the way that people don't get relevant, accurate information, the way that lawyers compete for clients and try to sell themselves as experts or I'll win or I will fight for you and and all of this stuff. And I say some of those things because clients want to know that if I'm in court, I'm going to fight for them. Sure. Right? Yeah. But we talk about, do you want an aggressive lawyer or an effective lawyer? So 100% agreement. I think it's horrible. I think it's terrible. The question is, what can we do to change it? There are throughout the country and all the different states bar rules. And there's rules on advertising. The problem is the bar polices itself which never is really a great idea. And they're so overwhelmed when they get complaints. So my heart goes out to you, Greg, on this issue. Yeah, because it just feels bad. I, I, I think the other, and, and I don't, I, I mean, this is in no way a, an effort to apologize for the divorce industrial marketing complex, right? Um, but in, in, in so many ways, like this is, a, this is kind of required practice to get noticed, and and not just noticed by people who need it in the divorce pro- pro- uh, process, but by search engines and like all of the the infrastructure around marketing, both legal services and coaching services and all the services, and that is a sad reality of our time, and that means that beyond bar rules, the responsibility to uh, like listen to those signals is on you. You got to turn it off right? Like you got to turn it off. A hundred percent. And the other thing that Greg said in his question is at least they got to a point where they both thought it was fair. Yeah. I've been doing this a long time. That's rare. I, I don't know what fair is because what I believe is fair and what someone else believes is fair can be totally different. And we both can be right. It's really not an objective point of view, right? And what I mean by that, some people will just say, well, look, if there's so much money, we should divide it evenly. But then someone says, but that money was a gift from my parents. Why do I have to give her half? So then you start getting in these details and the facts, and that's where a lot of the law is created, and that's the things that people argue about, and then the law isn't written clearly, and you're going in front of a governmental employee, and the real problem 
that I don't see as fixable, unfortunately, is in our society, if you're getting a divorce, we put you into an adversarial system, Mm -hmm. which means fighting and winning. The whole part, Greg, starts with our judicial system that I don't believe is the best way to resolve divorce disputes. And yet it's the system we have. Exactly. All right. Well, Greg, that was, uh, I hope that wasn't too downer of a, <laughs> of an answer, but just well, I know, agree with them. We agree. Like uh, you're, you're His absolutely question is, right. do I think about it? I think about it all, all the, time. the time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. And really relate to it. So Greg, thank you for asking the questions for submitting it, uh, in such a thoughtful, not uh, wandering way at all. You're, uh, you're better for doing it. Thank you. Uh, and thank you everybody for downloading, listening to this show. Don't forget how to split a toaster.com. Uh, it, press the button. Just press the button and you will submit your question to Seth uh, for a future episode. Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to the show. We appreciate your time and attention. On behalf of myself and Seth Nelson, uh, America's favorite divorce attorney, we'll see you right back here next week on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, how to split a toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.